Let's open our Bibles again to Genesis 18, the passage we read just a minute ago. I've titled the message this evening, Fellowship with the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. <clears throat> now one of these men who appeared to Abraham, <clears throat> excuse me, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is the Lord appearing in human form before he was born in Bethlehem. And I know this is the Lord himself because what he says in verse 10. He said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. Now only the Lord could promise he's going to give life to somebody. And of course we know that Isaac was born. Only he did come. The Lord did come back and, and give life at the time appointed. So this has to be the Lord. And if you look back in chapter 17, Abraham recognized this as the Lord. Because he'd appeared to Abraham before. In verse 1 of chapter 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Well, this is the same person who appeared to Abraham before, so he recognizes him. He knows this is the Lord. And we'll get to this later on in chapter 19. The other two men were angels. These are the angels that went to, to Sodom. And the Lord appeared at Abraham, to Abraham at this time for a reason, to commune with Abraham. That's why I've titled this Fellowship with the Lord, Communion, Communing with the Lord. In verse 33, And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. The Lord himself came at this time to commune with Abraham, to have this time with Abraham. Now that's a special time. Anytime the Lord condescends to come and commune with his people, it's a special time. And that's what happened here with the Lord and Abraham. Now all these years later, we read these Old Testament accounts of the fathers communing with the Lord Jesus Christ, talking directly to God. Think of that. We read the New Testament accounts of the disciples and the apostles they had time where they communed directly with the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught them the gospel directly, face to face. And we read these stories, and we think, I sure would like to commune with the Lord that way. I can't tell you how often Janet said, I wish the Lord just come and sit right down here at my kitchen table and tell me what, what, what's going on. What's, what a special time. We think, oh, I would have loved to, to have that, to commune with the Lord that way. Well, you know what? We can. We can. Believers can and do commune with the Lord. Not physically now, not physically, but by faith. And the way that we commune with the Lord today is around the sacrifice for the sin of His people. And that's why I thought it would be good for us this evening, a good time to observe the Lord's table, this communion, to commune with the Lord while I'm preaching on, on this subject. But if you look over at Exodus chapter 25, now if we're going to have communion with the Lord, the Lord's going to have anything to do with the likes of, of you and me, 
It's going to have to be through the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice that takes away our sin. Our communion, our fellowship with God has to all be around the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what God tells, Ab- or tells Moses here when he's given him the instructions for building the tabernacle in verse 21 of Exodus 25. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, and there, above that mercy seat, above the covering of the broken law, there I will meet with thee, and I'll commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. The Lord communed with his people above the mercy seat. Above the mercy seat, where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled, where the where the, the sin of the people was atoned for with the blood on the mercy seat. That's where the Lord communed with his people. And that's not, not changed from the end till now. This is how the Lord communes with his people. It's around the sacrifice of Christ. It's in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our text this evening, back in Genesis 18, gives us several pictures of that. I think will be a blessing to you. Number one, we have communion with God at the cross of Christ. In verse 4, Abraham says, Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Abraham had his visitors rest here under the tree, in the shade tree, while they waited for him to get everything ready, get them something to eat. Now this was was the heat of the day. John Gill said he, he kind of figures Abraham got up early in the morning and got a bunch of his work done, you know. And now it's the heat of the day. Now he, that's why he was resting in the tent door in the shade. Nobody's, you know, out working. It's the hot, hottest time of the day there in the desert. So the practical reason Abraham had them wait under the shade tree there was the shade in the heat of the day. But the reason Abraham had them sit there under that tree is that tree is a picture of the cross, Calvary's tree. I was only one here when, when this happened. Isaac got here singing. He practiced two songs. And I was hoping you'd sing that one because I'm going to quote it right here. The song he just sung. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. You see, it's at the foot of the cross. That's where we have communion with the Savior because it's there. He was crucified for our sin. That's where his blood was shed. That's where we can have communion with God. But now we don't have communion around a physical wooden cross, a representation of of the structure of the cross. That would be idolatry. When we talk about the cross, we're talking about the message of the cross. When we talk about the cross, this is what we mean. Not not the uh, the wooden structure, you know, was it an X or was it a T or, you know, was it just a pole? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that structure. We're talking about what did Christ accomplish there? The cross is not just a physical structure, it's the message. What did Christ accomplish? What does this bread and wine represent? What is, what is it he accomplished with his broken body and his shed blood? That's what we mean when we talk about the cross. And if you look at Galatians chapter 4, I'll show you that. Galatians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Galatians 6. 
That's better. Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now, Paul's not not uh, glorying in that hunk of wood that was used to kill our Lord. What he means is believers glory in what Christ accomplished by whom the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to it. What is it that Christ accomplished when he died on the cross? So much, so much, isn't he? I glory in how the blood of Christ's sacrifice has cleansed me from all sin. His blood put away all of the sin of all of his people at one time by one sacrifice. Well, I can glory and I can brag on that, can't you? I glory in how the death of Christ has saved me. Saved me from God. Saved me from God's wrath against my sin. My substitute suffered it for me. So I don't have to fear that. I, I brag on that. I glory in that. What a, what a relief to be able to live this life not fearing death and not fearing judgment. I glory in how the death of Christ for my sin, it accomplished something. It did something in me. made me the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin. That I might be made the righteousness of God in him. I glory in that. I don't understand it. I don't understand how that happened, but I sure do believe it. And I glory in it. I glory in how the death of Christ satisfied God's judgment for me, his justice. I'm free, free from condemnation, free from worry about condemnation. Somebody can't use the fear of condemnation and the fear of death as whips to try to drive me and motivate me because the death of Christ made me free from that. Don't you love being free? Somebody can't put you under a guilt trip and try to motivate you to do all this religious stuff. You're free. My glory and that the freedom, the freedom that God has given his people by the death of Christ, what he accomplished on the cross. And the place the believer finds rest, rest for our souls, peace for our heart, is being near the cross. Being so near the cross that we're just right there in the shade of it because we're so close to it. And again, You know I'm not talking physically here. I'm talking spiritually. I think there's a lot of reasons that believers enjoy the Lord's table so much. It's such a special time of worship. We take that wine that represents His shed blood and take that bread that represents His broken body. Spiritually, by faith, I mean, you're right there, aren't you? Right there in the shade of the cross and what He accomplished and how we remember Oh yeah, this is my hope. This is my only hope. The only way somebody like me could be saved. The only way a dead sinner like me could have eternal life is in what Christ accomplished in his death for me. It's so special. I find that I find rest for my soul when I'm hearing the gospel of Christ. When I'm hearing the gospel that declares who he is, what he did, why he did it, and where he is now. Suddenly all the burdens of this world become a whole lot less. They just fade in significance. And I find peace from my heart when I'm hearing the gospel of Christ preached. That's the cross. It's telling what Christ accomplished on the cross. And that's what we'll be remembering here in just a few minutes when we take this bread and this wine.
All right, number two, we have communion with God through the blood and the water that flowed from the wounded side of our Savior. Now look at John chapter 7. We read there where Abraham said, Now let me fetch you some water for you to wash your feet and be refreshed. Well, that water Abraham fetched is a picture of Christ, the water of life. Our Savior tells us about that water. John 7, verse 37. In that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now John tells us here what the Lord what, what or the Lord tells us what he means when he said this. Whoever's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, drinking is a picture of believing. Because the Lord immediately said, Whosoever believeth on me. But the drinking is a picture of believing. Whoever it is, whoever it is, wherever they're found, whatever their background. Whoever it is that believes on Christ has eternal life. Right? Whoever it is. Well, how do sinners like you and me get this water? Isn't that what the Samaritan woman wanted to know? You're telling me about this water? Tell me where I get this water, she said. I don't have to come hither and draw. Well, I'll tell you where we get this water. You don't draw it from a well. You don't get it in a bucket. You don't turn on the tap and get it out of the tap. The Lord gives us this water. When we're communing with him through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of his word. That's how the Lord gives life in the new birth. It's the seed of the word being preached. And he gives life through that. Through the preaching of Christ. You you just almost can't overstate the importance of what we're doing here tonight. What we do on Sundays. Preaching the gospel. When the gospel's being preached... We're not just listening to idle words. These are the words of life. This is the, the word that the Holy Spirit gives us and gives us uses to give us life as we commune with the Son of God. Commune with Christ by believing on Him when we hear the gospel being preached. The water is for drinking. This word that's being preached is for believing Friend, believe it. Believe on Christ. And if you can't believe, ask God to give you faith. To believe. But this water, you know, it's also used for washing. Abraham gave these three men water. And he told them one of the things they could do is refresh themselves by washing their feet. And you know, that must have felt good. I mean, I don't know how long it is these men walked, where they, when they appeared from heaven, how close they appeared to walk before they got to Abraham. I don't know. But however long you walk through the desert sand in open-toed sandals, it's going to feel good to put your feet in water, isn't it? Well, you know, that's the believer. The believer's been washed, been made holy in the blood and water. That blood and water that flowed from our Savior's side when that Roman soldier pierced his side with his spear, that blood and water is the double cure. Blood to justify, water to sanctify, water to make holy. Now you remember when the Lord washed his disciples' feet and he got to Peter. And our our brother Peter, 
one just like us. He said, Lord, you're not washing my feet. This, this is not right. This, no, you're not washing my feet. And the Lord said, Peter, I've got to wash you. If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter said, wash me all over. Wash my head and my toes and my body. Wash me. And the Lord told him, you're washed now, Peter. You're washed. He that's washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Peter, your soul's clean. Your soul's been purified. You're holy and clean. But our feet get dusty, don't they? As we walk through this world, our feet, the, the dust of this world, the corruption of this world, the Everything of this world sticks to us and we need to be washed. We need to be refreshed. And I tell you, for the believer, nothing is more refreshing than coming to the surface and having a drink from the water of God's word. Having the spirit apply it to our hearts. There's nothing more refreshing. I think uh, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine earlier this week and they live in a place where they don't have a Wednesday night service. He's asking, do you have a Wednesday night service? I said, yeah, we do. I said, it's my favorite service. It's my favorite service of the week. When I wasn't preaching, when I was sitting in the pew, it's my Wednesday is my favorite service of the week. Because you come in here directly from being out there, being in the world. You're trudging through dusty, hot sand and open-toed sandals dragging yourself through it to get here. And nothing is more refreshing to the believer than having your feet washed with the water of God's Word. It's so refreshing. My flesh would cling to the dust of this world. I mean, it, it craves it, it desires it, it wants it. And it's so refreshing to the new man to have the dust of this world washed off. Have your feet washed. And I tell you how that happens. How is it that our that we're refreshed and have our feet washed when we're reminded of Christ? When we commune with Him through the preaching of the gospel. I bet almost every person in this room has said this to me at one point or another. I was so tired. Oh, it's been it's been a day, it's been a week, I was so tired, and I thought, I'm not going tonight. I'm too tired, I can't make it, I'm not going. But I drug myself in here and now oh, I feel like I could run a marathon. I'm so refreshed and encouraged. Why? The washing of the water. It washes your feet and refreshes you. That's the water that Abraham, and that's how we commune with our Savior. Number three, we have communion with God over the broken body of Christ. I look back here in our text, verse 5. Abraham says, you rest yourselves here under the tree and I'll fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that you shall pass on, for therefore are you come to your servant. That's why you've come to me. I can do this for you. And they said, so do as thou hast said. And Abraham, Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. Now you know, everybody here knows what that bread represents. It represents the humanity of Christ. His body. His body. His fleshly body. Now you think what a miracle it is that the Son of God took on Him a fleshly body. You think He's spirit. He didn't have a body, but He took on Him a fleshly body. I mean, it's one of the greatest miracles mankind's ever heard of. Surpassed probably only by this miracle. Why he took on flesh. 
He took on flesh so that he could be the representative of sinful men and women, of the worst of the worst. The Lord of glory became a man, took on him a body, so that body could die. And not just die suddenly, but a, a body to be broken, a body to be tortured and broken as a sacrifice for the sin of his people, a body to be broken, to satisfy God's justice against the sin of his people. And that's what we're remembering tonight. Before the bread is distributed, I don't know if you all can see it from, from where you're sitting, but that bread comes in sheets. And Wayne's going to take that bread. He's going to break it. Everybody here is going to hear that bread breaking. What a vivid reminder of how our Savior's body was broken. Broken. Broken for the sin of his people. And that bread's distributed. And you take it. And we pray. And you put that bread in your mouth and your teeth. Grinding them. That's the body of our Lord being ground under the justice of his Father, under the wrath of his Father. His body, he took on him a body so that his body could be broken as a substitute for me. See, when you take that bread, this is what you're saying. When Christ died, he died for me. He's my substitute. His death put away my sin. This is, my, this is what I'm publicly claiming. He's my only hope of salvation. For me, he did that for me. When it came time, when his hour was come, the father gave his precious son, his beloved son, into the hands of wicked men and women to do with him as they pleased. And we saw Sunday in our, in our lesson Sunday, this is man's will. Destroy Jesus. He gave his son into the hands of men and the will of man was to break his body. To beat his face with their fist. To blindfold him and then hit him and say, Prophet tells, prophesy and tells who hit you. Just in, I can just imagine just a bloodthirsty, just frenzy. They grabbed the hair of his beard and pulled it out by the roots. Pilate took a man he said was innocent and Adam scourged with a cat of nine tails. Just that thing just raked across his back, pulling the flesh off of, away from his body. They made him a crown of thorns, mocking him as king, and they shoved those thorns down into his precious scalp. Then they took him and they nailed his hands and feet to a cross, stuck him up on it, and mocked him while he died. And then, after he'd already given up the ghost, just one more act of meanness, a Roman soldier shoved a spear into his dead body. Just, just for pure meanness sake. That's the will of man. God help us and deliver us from our will, don't you reckon? But that was the body of our Savior being broken when he made his soul an offering for sin. As bad as those physical sufferings are I just described, that's just the tip of the iceberg compared to his soul sufferings. His body was broken when he made his soul an offering for sin. That, but that now that bodily suffering was real. Because you know after he rose, his body still showed the evidences it had been broken. There are scars in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. 
He said, Thomas, put your hand in my side. Be believing. Doubt not. The scars from all those beatings and all those piercings are there as evidence that his body was broken for sin. Someone once said the only evidence of sin that there'll be in heaven is the scars in his precious body as his body was broken for sin. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread, the bread of life. And whoever eats his body has everlasting life. And just like drinking, eating means believes on him. Whoever it is that believes on Christ. Whoever it is that believes that all I need to be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's all I need. That person saved. Anybody who believes, I don't need to add any of my good works to Christ in order to be perfect. That person who truly believes that is saved. Anybody who believes I don't have to do something to help put my sin away or start sinning less in order to be saved because the blood of Christ's sacrifice paid the whole debt in full. Anybody who believes that, anybody who believes on Christ that way is saved. Now when we hear Christ preached, we hear him preached, he's enough. He's all I need. He's all you need. And by God's grace, we believe it. That's communing with God. That's communing with God. And our Savior gave us this table, the special way to remember his sacrifice and to be able to, to publicly confess all my hope, all my trust is in him. It's the Lord's table. And we take this bread and this wine. That's what we're saying. He's all I got. And I don't want anything else. He's all my And remembering the Lord in this way, that refreshes us, doesn't it? To be able to remember His sacrifice for me. To have these vivid reminders that this is is how, what the Savior went through to save the likes of me. That refreshes our souls, doesn't it? And you know why it refreshes us? Because it's communing with God around the sacrifice of His Son. It refreshes us. Now I know this, we can't commune with the Lord around our good works, can we? We sure can commune with the Lord on the sacrifice of Christ. What he's done for us and how we trust him. All right, here's the last thing. We have communion with God in the lamb slain for sin. Verse 6. And Abraham, Abraham hasted into the tent unto Sarah. Or I'm sorry. Verse 7. And Abraham went unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. Now you and I cannot commune with God apart from a blood sacrifice. Now I know Abraham didn't offer a lamb as a sacrifice here. He killed the lamb to be eaten. But that lamb is a picture of Christ, the lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sin of his people. Christ our Savior is the lamb of God. When he began his public ministry, and how John the Baptist identified him, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he took away the sin of his people from all over the world when he shed his blood. He was sacrificed in their place, shed his blood to put away their sin. Here's the thing about the sacrifice of the Lamb. We'll use the Passover Lamb as an example. 
You know, they took that lamb, they separated it out from the herd, and they watched it for 14 days to make sure the lamb was without blemish. You know, it's not good enough just to have a lamb. It's not good enough to have a lamb without blemish, without spot. It's not even good enough to take the lamb and kill it. The blood of the lamb, if we're going to be saved, must be applied to our hearts. In order for us to be saved, the lamb must be eaten. And remember, the eating is a picture of believing. Christ must be taken into our hearts by faith, so that He become part become parts of part of us. You know, in John six, when the Lord said, "Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you." I think one of the reasons He used eating there is a illustration of, of faith and belief is when we eat something it becomes part of us it becomes part of our flesh and bones and blood and, and all of our the cells of our body when we believe Christ he become part he becomes part of us we become part part of him we have union with him so when the father looks at the son he doesn't see any difference between the believer and the son he sees him as one earlier this week, I ate me a big old steak. Big steak. The biggest one I had on the menu. Big baked potato. Bunch of vegetables. Now when you all look at me tonight, you don't see, well, there's Frank, and there's some steak, and there's some potatoes, and, and there's some vegetables. You see, there, there's Frank. That steak's already become part of me now. I had to loosen my belt just to prove it to you. It became part of me. When we believe on Christ. He becomes part of us. And we commune with the Lord and we hear from God and we hear that Christ's sacrifice is all we need and we trust Him. We trust that sacrifice is all I want. He's all I need. That's communing with God. In closing, let me give you this. I think this will be a blessing to you. Abraham states here the desire, the heart's desire of every believer. In verse 3, he said, My Lord, if now I found favor in thy sight, Pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Isn't that your heart's desire? Oh, if I found grace in the sight of the Lord. How do I know if I found grace in the sight of the Lord? I can't tell you how desperately I want to know. I found grace in the sight of the Lord. How do you know? Well, the answer is very simple. It's because Christ was crucified for you. Was Christ crucified for your sin? Did, he, did his sacrifice put away all your sin? Is he your only hope? Well, I'll tell you this. We just talked about all the things that our Savior went through when he was sacrificed, crucified for his people. If the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you, for your sin, certainly you could say, yeah, I found grace in his sight. I didn't deserve that. He did that even though I didn't deserve it. That's grace. And if you found grace in God's sight, this is his promise to you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And if we found grace in his sight, he's going to enable us to commune with him. To commune with him because when we hear the gospel preached, he's going to enable us to believe it and to commune with God. Abraham told him in, in verse 5, you take these things and comfort ye your hearts. 
But if you found grace in the sight of the Lord, hearing the message of the cross, hearing the, the message is what Christ accomplished on the cross, that comforts your heart. That comforts your heart. And this table is for you because the only way it comforts your heart is if you believe on Christ. If that describes you, then this table is for you. All right, Wayne, if you men would, dis distribute the bread. Given the instructions for the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Jonathan, would you give thanks for the bread?
Paul continues, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wayne, would you give thanks for the bread or the wine? I couldn't even begin to tell you how many times I've observed the Lord's table. It never gets old, does it? Such a simple thing, unleavened bread and wine, such a simple thing. Every other simple thing in life. Eh. Not this. Why? It's communion with the Savior. All right. Isaac, you come lead us in a closing hymn. Come on.